Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Derek, what's the gossip? Any any big plans coming up? Well, we do have a very big plan. As you know, there's a referendum going at the moment, and I think we are going to be so exhausted by the night before the referendum. We're all going to want something cool, laid back to do. I always want something cool and laid back to do. Well, on Thursday, the 24th, in Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin, there's going to be a motherfucker live show, and you're in it. <laughs> I'm in it. Me? Yes. Am I joined alongside Terry O'Hagan and Rick O'Shea? You are indeed. You're joined by old Ireland expert Terry O'Hagan and broadcasting legend Rick O'Shea. And what time is this kicking off at? Eight bells. Eight bells. And if I was to go to this hip-hop happening live podcast, where would I get the tickets? You should check out the International Literature Festival Dublin website, ilfdublin.com. From Heads Up Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. I'm joined today by two of our wonderful regulars. My name is Emer Duffy. And I'm Kathleen the Keeper. And we are going to have a fun, fun half hour talking about the women of the town. Women are class. I agree. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's been a lot said about, you know, Lake the charioteer and Cucullan and all of the stuff he did to that dog and and so forth. But, you know, we're, right now we're going to maybe focus more on, you know, maybe some of the interesting other interesting characters because of piece of mythology. The town actually represents represents women in a very interesting way. We're going to start off, Emer, with your namesake. My woman, my gal. So um, Cucullan's wife was a woman called Ever. Um, spelled E-M-E-R, uh, modern day Emer. Um, and she was unreal. She was absolutely class. I wrote my thesis on her, kind okay. of inadvertently. It wasn't supposed to be like that, but it turned out that way. Um, and I graduated in the end, so it all worked out well. Um, uh. So Emer is, um, and I don't like using this term, um, but Emer was the early Irish equivalent of a girl boss. Okay. Yeah, she was class. Um, I had initially referred to her as a literary middle finger. And oh. I was told to get that out of my thesis fairly promptly. <laughs> so um, I did, unfortunately. But um, but that's what she is. She kind of flips the norm of um, depictions of women in, in early Irish material. Okay. And that's why she's so cool. 
Tell us how she does this. Um, so basically, in early Irish society, I've kind of gone into this a bit before, but um, you know, obviously, same same shit, different era, very kind of patriarchal society. Men had all the power, whatever else. Women weren't um, women weren't powerful characters. Their speech was generally disregarded. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have um, stood up in legal terms. Like women weren't allowed to give evidence in court. Oh. Women weren't poets. Advice given by a woman was usually um, ill advice kind of a thing. Um, it, it was a lot of kind of references to almost like witchcraft. Um, like if you got advice from a woman, bad things would happen to you. Um <laughs> But basically, Emer kind of took her speech and made it super important. She recited a lot of like poems and satire, which was never heard of oh. uh, for a woman. All poets, all scribes, they were all men. Okay. So to have something ascribed... Well, I, I can't really say ascribed to Emer because all of these texts were written in the male hand. Mm-hmm. So this man was pretending to be Emer and kind of putting speech in her mouth. So does it really count? If it's one but um, mm-hmm. but yes, yeah, so they've given her a lot of um, powerful elements of speech. Uh, one of my favorites is um, there's an episode where Cuchulain, um is married to Emer. Mm-hmm. And he runs off with um, a young one called um, Fond. Fond. Yes. And Which hasn't caught on as a name compared to Emer. Yeah, well, F-A-N-D. It's a bit... Mm. <laughs> 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 because Emer is much cooler than Fond. But um, basically what Emer says is she kind of just stands up for herself and she was like, come here, do you want this young one? Or me because I'm unreal. Mm-hmm. And um, she she puts it to her horrendous cheating husband, mm-hmm. um, and she fights her corner, and she wins in the end. She fights with Fond or fights with Cucullin? Uh No, she fights her corner verbally. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, <laughs> there were scraps. There were scraps. No, um, but as well as that, the only reason that she ended up married to Cucullin, our almost lord and savior, hero of the entire era mm-hmm. um is because of her speech oh mm-hmm. yeah so with um the text that deals with kuholan getting um getting married to emer yes what happened is you know kuholan was brave and mighty and handsome and beautiful and he was the best thing since sliced pan uh, so obviously he needed a woman that matched him in in status and everything else. And um, the thing that set Emer out that kind of portrayed her to an audience as being the one for him mm-hmm. is the fact that she was able to match him in this complicated verse that they were um, speaking in. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in the even in the translations, it's kind of it's difficult to read. It's difficult to kind of wrap your head around. They're speaking in kind of riddles and um, in certain meter and things like that. And yeah. Emer is supposedly the only woman that could match that. And that's how they portrayed Emer to the audience as being like the ultimate woman for Cúchulán. 
And this started when Cucullin approached her and commented on resting a spear between hills or something, is it? Mm-hmm, he did, and we're not going to discuss that because that uh, because he's a bit of a creep. It is, that that is clearly mm. creepy, but I think what, I mean, it's easy to dwell on the creepiness of it, which we don't do here because we're, no, we no. we're a classy podcast, no, but no. what is sometimes missed in the translation is the actual, the metric, uh, the meter patterns and the actual puns in the old Irish that would have been there that maybe haven't translated well. And yes, you mentioned obviously that Ever or Emer is the uh, was the we'll wife. We'll call her Emer because it makes me sound cool. We'll call her Emer. Yeah. So <laughs> Emer's married to Cucullin and we, we, we won't detail his many kind of uh, unhusband like acts here, but no. uh, was like and, and beyond her marriage to him that she had an existence and she had, as you say, girl boss or uh, or literal middle, middle middle finger characteristics. And you want to tell us more about how how she got busy that she wasn't just some hero's wife. I don't know, because um, I kind of looked at how she was destroyed by Yates. That's how I kind of hmm. took her up as. That's interesting. Yeah. This is the thing, is the only jealousy of Emer. Is that about Fond as well? And Emer uh, It and was Kukon. the, um, that's the Shereglegas, that's the lovesickness of Kukulun, the only jealousy of Emer. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that is, that is what I looked at. My thesis, I looked at, um, I looked at how WB Yeats portrayed this um this text and it looks as more of like a kind of a cultural translation where he chops and changes a lot of what Emer says and does like for the most part the text if you were to read it you're like yeah this is this is what happens in Shergliga Kukulun uh, which would be the love sickness of Kukulun that's all well and good but then you read it kind of in context of the early Irish text mm-hmm. and that's when shit goes south basically okay. <laughs> uh, yeah so Yeats took a lot of her um, her important speech and just kind of got rid of it he brushed it aside um, he took away any of the like the satire that she would have recited mm-hmm. um, and while the text that he wrote is still fairly like oh yeah there we go this is what happened um, kind of matchy matchy to the old Irish when these kind of little changes that he made um, they kind of destroy the importance of the text you know he didn't he didn't look at it within its proper cultural context and translate it he kind of just did his own thing and yeah Gates wouldn't have been like uh, wouldn't have seen himself as very much a translator he was writing his own versions rather than um Rather than taking the initial text. He was, yeah. Uh, The Only Jealousy of Emer that uh, he has written. It's actually a drama that he wrote. Mm -hmm. Um, It was written for stage. Uh, So that's another kind of, it's like a cultural transposition that he's done more so than a translation. Yes. Um, So I think he's lost a lot of the, like the little bits that make Emer who she is. Yes. He kind of, maybe willingly or otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to ask him. I've been to his grave. He's not answering. Um, (laughs) Willingly or otherwise, he has just kind of chipped and chipped and chipped and chipped um, away at who she was and just kind of made her really white bird. I think so. I think there's certainly, I know from, um, I... I'm not a fan of Yeats's plays. I do like his poetry. I don't like his plays. I have I studied them in university. I thought these will be grand. Fly through these, write a quick essay. Hey, no. Yeah, so my memory, I think, though, was that 
Yates is very much trying to shoehorn his theory of gyres and and of cyclical kind of millennial angst and things into the mythology rather than looking at the actual the core meanings of mythology itself. He was using Kukul and Anemer and those other characters as placeholders to talk about his other broader ideas and the stand-ins for him and Maud Khan and Portman parts too. Yes, there was actually, there's a very interesting argument that I read uh, where it could be looked at as how Yeats saw himself as Ku Cullen, where yeah. he had like these, Ku Cullen had two women basically on the go. He had Emer and he had Fond and Emer and Fond were fighting over him and um, then he kind of, he put himself almost in the place of Ku Cullen where, you know, Yeats's love life was was Yeats's love life and we won't go into that but um that was kind of that was a an argument that I saw um that I saw drawn and it was it was interesting it made me kind of it made me do a little little do a little double take mm-hmm. um and read it a bit differently but uh it still it didn't it's not right he should not have destroyed my gal like that he did her an injustice <laughs> oh, I think maybe the time is ripe for you to revisit Emer and you mentioned her being a middle finger to in your, you mentioned in your thesis, the line yes, struck yes. as being a middle finger um, to authority, to Ireland, to... To everything. Oh. Yeah, just to the entire literary culture. And I know it's like, it always comes back to the fact that, yes, these are texts written by men. So you can't really look at Emer as being, you know, a woman written by a woman. You know, you can't take that kind of feminist critique to it because you can't impose your modern values upon something that was, you know, mm. written God knows when. Um, yes. So when you look at her, you look at, like I said, women would never have given evidence in a court of law. Um, women would never have given advice. Their speech wasn't powerful. Yes. And Emer kind of takes this and she flips it on her head. Um so she's kind of, she starts off, um, you know, she's described as every woman. You get that kind of a top down description of a person. Yeah. So you'd be like, oh, they had long hair and they had blue eyes and they had a long nose and straight white teeth. And then they had shoulders and they had elbows and hands and they had long shins and lovely feet. Uh, so you always get that kind of a top down description of a person. And like that, you get that with Emer. Mm. Um, so you kind of go, oh, here's another one. You know, usually just kind of um, a character that's there for the crack. Um, and then she kind of she comes along and she's like, no, no, I'm going to I'm going to say stuff. And mm. immediately you're like, whoa, all right. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, and then, you know, she recites satire and satire was a very serious thing to recite against a person. Yes. And yeah, so basically satire was um, like me if I was to go out now and be like on on Twitter and I'd be like, Dark is a horrible person. I saw him kick a puppy down the road and, you know, it's mm. like gets like 15,000 retweets and whatever else. You know, it's that kind of like slanderous. And that doesn't um, count all the ones that are just quote tweets with the words thread on top of yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's actually, you know, 15 tweets long about Daryl mm. kicking a puppy down the street. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Daryl do does not kick puppies. No puppies were harmed in the recording of this podcast. Um, Except the one by Kukulon. Yeah, well, let's talk about him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so basically what she does, she recites this satire against Fond, who is this other 
woman who Cuchulain has run off with. So, you know, she's an important character. Mm. Um, she is worthy enough, I'm going to use, you know, air quotations there, for um, for Cuchulain to run off with. Mm. Uh, and next thing, Emer is kind of standing there and be like, the neck of you! Who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she, mm. she fights her corner. Um, she uses her words. And, uh, like I said, she lives happily ever after. <laughs> happily ever after. Yay. One thing that's interesting is, like, do we actually believe that women didn't participate or is it just that their participations weren't included and recorded? Because I don't believe that women started giving advice, like, in the modern era. Is this, ideas, you know, like... Uh, in, like, in legal terms? Well, no, like, say, you know, satire and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure women have been creating and rhyming since the year dot. It's just that they didn't get space in text before. You see, um... The it was always the kind of the educated classes um, that would have been writing. They would have been, you know, recording written sources um, and they were always in like a monastic almost settlement. They were always within religious confines, should we say. Yeah. Um, so obviously women weren't in there. They would never have they wouldn't have gotten this education that would have allowed them to, to write. Um, and I know there is an argument, uh, I think it's by Thomas Owen Clancy about uh, women poets where basically you would take a poem to be of male hand unless proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like that as well, you've got you've got law texts that survive and, you know, most people have a copy. Of, if you're if you're into early Ireland and early Irish law, you will have a copy of Fergus Kelly's Guide to Early Irish Law. It's brilliant. Um, it's so accessible, even for a non-academic like me. It is, it is brilliant. I think even my mom has read it. Oh. Um, but he goes into a bit of detail about, you know, um, women and, you know, their place within the law and their place within society um, and how they just wouldn't have been given, like their word was seen as untrustworthy. Um, so they wouldn't have been given. Um, you mean they didn't what? trust women? No. Yeah. What's that about? No, there's no hashtag trust woman back in the oh, medieval no, Ireland, no. No, no, um, I see. Yeah, more about that on the 24th. <laughs> um, but, oh, yes, yeah. On the 24th, we will be doing a live, live broadcast of Mother Folklore in Smock Alley Theatre. It's 24th of May. 24th of May. In case anybody's listening case later you... on, in which case, I'm sorry you've missed out. You were not cool enough to come and see us. You missed out. But on 24th of May, Emer and I will be joined by Terry O'Hagan and Rick O'Shea. And we're going to be talking about the cosy, nerdy plays of the internet, such as the Vox Bernacan blog, Ricochet's book club, and the Irish Foreign Twitter. It's going to be brilliant. It is going to be brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's going to be during the referendum moratorium as well. So people, you know, <laughs> it'll be um, after a, a long, hard weeks of campaigning, people maybe will be in the mood for some light, nerdy fun, and we'll be delivering it in buckets. We're going to sit down, we're going to have a laugh, and we may or may not drink a rake of cans. You know what? There might be a rake of cans. Maybe every time someone says an Irish word, Derek has to drink a whole can. <laughs> I have work at eight o'clock the next morning, so I might not drink the entirety of the cans. But every time I, I go, no. mm, or, um, <laughs> <laughs> cans. Yeah. I quite like to see you stoicious. I think that could be fun. I have never been stoicious my entire life. I almost believed you. <laughs> yeah, right. They think that's what we should do. We should get a drinking game mm. going. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think and I think a mother folklore drinking game. You know what? If you have any suggestions for how your own mother folklore drinking games work, you at home, do you take a shot every time um, 
do you take a shot every every time uh, Patter corrects Derek? Do you take a, <laughs> do you take a shot every time um, every time Garajean mentions um, the leash? Oh God, you would be distraught. You would be absolutely in bits. Um, oh my God, down your drink every time Emer talks about women. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? If you have your own rules for what you think uh, a motherfucker drinking game would, should, or is like. Do let us know. We'd be very curious to know. And the best suggestions we read out on our next mailbag episode. But also tweet it to us because I yep. really wanna really wanna see what the crack yeah, is. We can't wait to um, hear. Yeah, we'll we'll get one going by the twenty fourth. Um we'll get it we'll get a few gin and tonics into us and no doubt Emer will probably cry by the end of the night because gin makes me cry. Oh um, Mother's yeah. ruin. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I also learned that recently. <laughs> so Emer, who'd win in a scrap between Emer and Maeve? Or Meadow. Oh, Emer, hands down. Hands down. She's unreal. Justify her, Mark. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't like putting women against each other in a competition, yeah. but yeah. I mean, you know, Emer's, Emer's going to win this ship. I think so. I think you're probably right that rather than fighting each other, they should join forces and fight all the dorks. They should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They should, ju- they, should, they should just fight all the men. Yes. Just wailing on dorks. <laughs> Wait, <Yeah. laughs> Wait, speaking of wailing on dorks, now we're going to have maybe consider maybe. Now we're going to pick on Kathleen here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Kathleen, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Maeve and maybe maybe even how she's been represented more recently than the old Irish sure, versions? Yeah. It's interesting that you were talking, Emer, um, about Yeats identifying with Cúchulainn because that does seem to be a pattern of male poets that they see Cúchulainn as being this kind of heroic character, albeit flawed. But the female poets just destroy him. We know um, Nuala Nugodal has one poem where she she talks about him having a chip on his shoulder, not really liking women. Uh, She calls him a small, dark, sad man. (laughs) (laughs) Good woman. All the poems about him are people talking to him and pretty much critiquing him. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Maeve, she's given, again, the agency of her own speech. So Nuala has this brilliant poem called A Tan, Lauren Maeve. It's great for the day when you need some angry feminist poetry. And it's, she says, I'm back fighting another war but this time it's for something much more important than cattle this time it's for my bodily integrity funnily oh, enough well, hey uh-huh. well, hey repeal the eighth amendment what so one of the one of the great lines in it is she talks about these these kind of i can't think of what the dublin term would be um what's okay, the ulster term like hoods hoods yeah like um corner boys Oh, uh, spides. Yes, it's spides. Exactly, exactly. It's spides. Yeah, I'm um, so lost here. We we don't call them in um in Belfast. I believe a uh, spide a is. Stick. Oh, yeah. I'm hood. still so lost, <laughs> yeah. guys. <laughs> a lot of words for this is particular a, class yeah. of person of man. A, a tattered Amalian. <laughs> Or a rapscallion. The rapscallion. Okay, yeah. So, okay, there we go. Right, I'm, I'm following his now. Go she has ahead. this killer line about these rapscallions of the fee, of the fihipun, the 20 pint drinking men who look for any excuse to stick their hand up her skirt. And she's saying, this time I'm coming for you and I'm not stopping. And she talks about... Young flas. Young Just call them young flas. Young flas. Or kind of aging young flas as well, I think. They're all young flas. They're, 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 so. they're eternal young flas. They're not young fellas, they're young flas. But anyway... Mm-hmm. It almost sounds approving though, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, boys will be boys. No. But uh, Maeve does not agree. Um, so there was something else I was going to say about Maeve. Well, we already talked about, about um, 
the Biddy Jenkinson version of the tan, that which which was kind of dismissing it all as a patriarchal nonsense and trying this to correct it. This was tan re. Tan re. Tan re. I beg your pardon. No, no, no. Yours is right as well. Oh, yeah. It's a dialect. Oh, yeah. That's how he's talked down here. <laughs> so in, in tan re, Biddy Jenkinson takes a, a collection of women called Maeve or variations of Maeve, and they consider how how she has been represented or how women in the town have been represented. She does, and she's correcting. She's explicitly saying that the version of the story recorded by men is inherently biased towards men and against women, and that the female part was much more important. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting, I think, is that women seem to identify with Maeve, even though Maeve is quite clearly, I think, an anti-hero. So she's she's badass, but she's also vain and makes bad decisions. Um, Same. (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's important to to have that kind of figure and to be responsible for like to start a war or a cow you know Mm -hmm. um but the male attitude towards these female characters is very different um so male poets there's one great love poet called colin brachnach and he's written an entire collection about skaha who's one of the more minor female characters of the story um who supposedly taught ku colin how to fight which is an interesting thing in itself um that he would get his battle skills from a woman and then also apparently possibly took his virginity Oh. And, yeah, um, she's a Scottish woman, and I, I don't know why that's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to like draw draw kind of a connection there. And he's, like, he's no. away in Scotland um, learning yeah. to fight, and then I think things happen. Um, uh, what's interesting is that this this really really good contemporary poet bases his own kind of sexual awakening on this this power the, dynamic. The of, story of Scarlet and Satanta or Scarlet and Exactly, and a great um, like very kind of. Um, erotic and powerful entire book of collect uh, entire book of poetry which explores these kind of questions about his status at the beginning and at the end and how you know to be educated by not an older experienced woman that's really mm. it's really special fantastic mm. and the poem is called uh well it's the collection of poetry oh. called Skaha. oh fantastic. but the best is called Dan the Skaha and it's Dan Skaha yeah it's amazing great stuff we will put links to these works on the Twitter handle, the Irish Ford Twitter handle, after this episode comes live. Woohoo, which will be before our live podcast. Before our live podcast. Going to plug that one again, May the 24th. May the 24th be with you? No. I'll shut up, would you? <laughs> no. May the 24th, Smock Alley Theatre, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. And you know what? If you want to buy tickets, you can go online right now on ilfdublin.com and buy them. And then tell us when you buy them so that we know who I can bully on stage. We know who and yep, so we would be <laughs> delighted to know. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful show. Mm-hmm. I promise I won't bully anyone. See, it's not every day you get a promise like that. It's not <laughs> yeah. every day you get a promise like that from me, Mer. That's true. That's true. So you have to buy your tickets. You should consider selling shout outs. So like if they give you a shot, then you can craft an insult for them. That's true. There's a thought. Yeah. No, I would probably do it or contribute a shot for <laughs> a particularly vicious insult about myself. Okay. On stage. Okay. <laughs> Challenge laid down. That is a lot of how satire used to work. So there are certain satirists who'd actually satirize you for, you know, your own delectation. Indeed. Some people like to be humiliated. Humiliated. And there was a belief as well that mm. if you were satirized, um, you would physically be deformed. So Yeah, you'd get you'd be blemished. Yeah. And like it would actually physically manifest itself. Uh, usually so, on the face yeah, as well. Yeah. Kind of warts and boils and stuff. So yeah. it was something you really didn't want to happen. You did not want someone to tweet the Derek kicks, pu- kicks puppies because there were going to be bad consequences. Because then your face get all mashed up. <laughs> well, yeah. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I can imagine it's. Uh, I suppose at the moment, yeah. So I guess my daughter satirizes me regularly when she scratches me with her tiny little fingernails. <laughs> ah, but you'll allow it because she's small. Exactly, yeah. she's small and she's wonderful. Yeah, oh. but yeah. Uh, anyway, back to the back to the real thing. Uh, <laughs> so. Another cool thing about not well being satirized or not being satirized is if it comes to kingship and this is on a wild tangent from uh, poor old Ever and Medev but um, kings were supposed to be physically flawless so if they were satirized against and suddenly they broke out in boils or something I don't know um, they would no longer be allowed to be king because they wouldn't be physically perfect for sure, and mm-hmm. this is one of the this is one of the least woke parts of Breton law was that you know that that king's <laughs> wokeness level. <laughs> the, the wokeness level is so low in the particular area of Breton law, in that actual certain like uh, physical incapacities could exclude you from kingship or leadership roles, which is shocking. But then you know a black eye, a lost eye, or also those sorts of things, or like a massive scar would mean that that person clearly doesn't have the the hedge of royalty around them that makes them a king. Yeah, I think the belief was that if you were the right person for Ireland or for whatever your place was, that the sovereignty goddess would bestow that on you by giving you perfection and if she took it away from you. So if you lost an eye or an arm or got a boil, that was the sovereignty goddess saying, uh-uh, your time's up. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Skahuk there as being um, an, an older woman who who teaches Kukulun how to love. And how to fight. And the two together. Yeah. And wasn't wasn't Mev's fella a little younger lad as well? Actually, I don't know. I believe he was. Hmm. This seems to be a recurring theme. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> they had um they had a little discussion at the beginning of the thorn. The pillow talk. The pillow talk, yeah, which is which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's like, Is it that he has lots of sheep or lots of cows? And then she's like, Yeah, but I have more though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he um, says, you did a good thing when you married me. And she's like, uh, I was fine before I met you. Yeah. <laughs> she's really like unleashing her inner Beyonce on that one. But um, it's cool. They very much wanted to work out which one of them had married up. Because mm-hmm. obviously they were both, you know, royalty of, some, of sorts. But they, and it all came down to the difference of a bull. Spoiler alert. Spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. Yeah. With, with, with gas consequences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you call that gas, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> sure, that's what the men of Ulster see it. So are there more representations of Mev or Medev in, as the old the old Irish pronunciation would have been Medev that's been form that's been modernized to just Maeve, straight Maeve. Exactly, yeah. So um gonna go off another quick tangent there. But uh Medev would have been spelled M E D B. And then that has been sort of, I won't say anglicized, but it's been hiberno-anglicized. Simplified. I don't know. Yeah, kind of. Um, as Maeve, which is M-E-A-V-E, M-E-A-D-H-B-H, M-E-A... I'd say Ma- Maeve is one of whatever. the names. Maeve, Maeve and Emer and are two of the names that have the largest divergence in spelling. And I think that's because some, some of the older Irish names that were actually popular hundred years ago, whereas an awful lot of Irish names that we have now weren't actually terribly popular in the early days of the Free State and the Republic. The Catholic Church wouldn't always baptize people with an uh, an Irish name that was perceived to be pagan unless there was a a local saint connection of some sort. And that's why you actually find maybe that a lot of these names like Gráinne and Deirdre and Darach and, and became a lot more popular in the 60s and 70s after Vatican II. Both my grandparents, my female grandparents, had formal names and 
christening names for that reason. Nobody ever called them by their christening names, but they couldn't be christened Cassie, mm-hmm. so they weren't. Yeah. Is, is it true that Maeve means she who intoxicates? I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty cool name. Mm, that is a pretty cool name. Mine just means little catch. <laughs> little catch? Hmm. <laughs> well, mine is mine is the badass woman that married Cullen, so whatever. <laughs> I think you win. Mine means yeah. like an oak tree, Sorry. which is which is well. And one of the great things is I've often called Derek by mistake throughout my childhood, but now, the, in in the most recent record on the CSO, the actual Dareks are catching up with the Dareks. They've nearly overtaken them. Hmm. So there's there's nearly I think until 2016 there were, there was almost as many Dareks born as Dareks. Wow. But then Derek has dropped really sharply. I was going to say, I have met a baby Derek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, look at him. What is he called? Derek. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> Derek and his sister Gubnut. Sorry, any Gubnuts out there? Gub, Gub is a great name. <laughs> you reckon? I think so. Gub, Gubnut was actually was clearly was one of these saints that was clearly a um, Christianized version of a pagan goddess because she had... A swarm of bees that did her bidding, and they would attack her enemies and sting them. That is pretty badass. And then she would yeah, she would heal with honey, but then she would sting with bees. Oh, I like it. Yeah, I like it. I'm gonna take it back up. Okay. <laughs> so one of the characters who one of the characters who intrigues and baffles students of older Irish and of mythology is the Morrigan. Do you want to tell us more about what the Morrigan what the Morrigan is and what? Sure. Morgan wants. Sure. <laughs> Good question. Mm. Uh, so there's two kind of very marginal female characters in the town who mm. are extremely important, despite the fact that they don't have much in the way of stage lines. Okay. Um, so the Morgan is one of them and she's kind of um, a manifestation of fighting and war, uh, kind of like a war goddess. Okay. And um, anytime she's around, you know that you're in trouble. She's sort of the dark female energy. Oh. And she's she featured in a lot of um, contemporary poetry as a way of talking about things like mental health or kind of um, schizophrenia and things like that. So it's kind of like the the dark side of um, of femininity, I guess, and the, the dark mother in Jungian um, psychoanal- psychoanalysis. Um, so she... Though she doesn't, I don't think, have the power of speech. She mm. has an incredibly important role in that she's kind of behind all the killing and the death and there's a lot of it. Um, while Fadalma, the seer, I think she's called Fadalma, um, also gets very, very few lines, but she's the one who predicts that this is all folly and madness. Mm. And unlike the Morrigan, who has great action but doesn't speak, Fadalma speaks a little bit and is completely ignored. And she's actually yeah. the one person who could probably have changed the course of the fight if Maeve hadn't been so stubborn and had listened to her when she said, you know, I, all I see ahead is blood, basically. So it's it's interesting, the contrast between these two characters, one who has the power of speech and no one listens to, and the other who has no power of speech and has a lot of other power. It's very telling, the idea that the less talking, more just, you know, shocking and horror. But mm. Morgan is also kind of a shapeshifter as well. Yeah, it's, there's a complicated relationship mm. between these three kind of features of the same sovereignty character. And she would be, there's the Morgan and the... The um, Banov, Balov, Banov, Banov, Banov is is Banov is because Banov is obviously a piglet. Yeah, that's why I haven't been confused. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, but yeah, so there's these femaley sort of energied creatures, and we can't. We I wouldn't. I I regard her as a feminine energy, but I don't think she's actually like a physical person. And the same, I imagine the Banov is a mm-hmm. bird. It's like a vulturey kind of bird of prey. Um, and they, so they have different aspects, but basically they're representing the same thing, this dark energy, this dark um, destructive force. Oh. Mm-hmm. Before we do wrap up, are there kind of versions of the Tawn that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very interested in checking out or 
Some of text. What would you recommend someone who's more wants to read more about this? Which version should they get their hands on? I would go with the graphic novel version. Um, it's kind of accessible. It's the the new version of the Tan, which has been released last year by Darho Scully, is a really major release. It's really important, but mm. it's not for the faint-hearted language-wise. The graphic novel is a lot more accessible, and you get lots of good gory pictures. And if you're inclined, you could read that next to Tan Reef by Peter Jenkinson and see the contrast between the kind of original patriarchal telling and the very chaotic and untraditional telling by Biddy. Fantastic. I would recommend uh, from sort of an academic point of view would be Cecile O'Reilly's edition and translation of the Thon. Um, she has the um, edition translation and there's a discussion there as well. Um, I think I bought my copy for something like 12 euro. Oh. Yeah, super cheap. Uh, very good investment piece and if anything it looks very fancy on your bookshelf. Um, even if you buy it and don't read it people will think that you um, you are very intelligent. Is that in English? Yeah, yeah. edition translation. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know what? It does look very, very good. And, you know, that's the great thing about actual hard copy books. Is when you have e-books, no one knows what you've read. No one no, no one walks into your house and can work out what kind of person you are. Which in some cases is a good thing. You should only buy e-books if they're shameful. Yes. Shame, shameful e-books. Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey on the Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> well, Two things I don't actually own. A Kindle or Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, yeah, well, there we go. But certainly, I know, and, and obviously, the most famous version of Tawn is uh, is Thomas Kinsler's translation with the illustrations by Louis Lebrocki. Louis Lebrocki, I was going to say, yeah. Is, and Thomas Kinsler recently had his ninetieth birthday, so very happy, happy birthday, birthday to happy him. Happy birthday, Mr. Kinsler! For those of us who are of the Soundings generation, which I think I'm the only one in the room, uh, he was the only living poet in Ireland for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> but now he's um, and was very was particularly interesting was that he was when he was in the civil service he was private secretary to Tom, um to T.K. Whittaker, oh. who yeah so that um, who also wrote a little bit in addition to saving the the country economically from Eamon de Valera, so quite quite a fella quite yes. a baller. <laughs> There's also a version <laughs> by a Belfast poet called Kieran Carson. Oh yes, we want to hear a bit of a a northern attitude towards it. Kieran Carson, as well as just translating it, he translated into a kind of a um, an, a Northern Irish idiom of of English, which is particularly interesting to see, and that's well worth checking out. Everything but Kieran Carson is, is worth checking out. He's a marvelous talent. Fishing for embers is another great one, I think. For embers. Embers. Doesn't ring a bell. It's been a while since I read him. I better check that out. Anyway, on that note. We're gonna we're gonna stampede Tonry out of here. Hey. So we look forward to seeing as many of you as possible at Smock Alley Theatre on twenty fourth of May. And if you're listening later than that, you will look forward to hearing the that the you look forward to hearing that episode broadcast on the Heads to Podcast Network really soon. In the meantime, it's a slant for me. Slan. It's a slant for me. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please do like, rate, subscribe, um, motherfucker, wherever you do get your podcasts. Maybe it's iTunes, maybe it's Stitcher, wherever. Please do go on and like, rate and subscribe. It means a lot to us. And of course, do tell your friends. Nothing is more important than word of mouth. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, we'll be sure to see as many of you as possible on the 24th of May. Uh, I don't think we can plug this live podcast anymore in this uh, <laughs> in this 30 minute slot. Yes. Um, but as always, um, 
write us some nice messages. Um, get to us at the Irish Four on Twitter uh, or motherfolklore at uh, headstuff.org. Motherfolklore comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for producing and thanks to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork. And thanks to all the backroom team at Headstuff for helping out. Thanks to Paddy, uh, Paddy O'Leary and Alan Bennett. If you've enjoyed this show, there's, there's some other wonderful shows on the Headstuff Podcast Network. For example... There's a new, a brand new show about 90s pop culture called Up to 90. Yeah, check it out. They speak Irish. They sent me a message. So go them. Join us next week when Patter and I are going to be talking about counting numbers and plural nouns in Irish. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Do you slam pint?